Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're beginning a new book. It's called The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. And before we get going with this one, unusually, I've got a dust cover on it so I can read you a little bit about what's coming up and a couple of the reviews. It says, Joan was 22 feet long and carried no engine. She sailed first round Great Britain, later to Spain, Madeira and the Baltic, and last to Iceland and down the Greenland coast bound for America. Disaster overtook her south of Cape Farewell. She was dismasted in a gale and hold, lost her pump overboard and drifted southward for six days till she reached the shipping routes and was abandoned after her crew of two had been picked up by a passing steamer. From Motorboat Magazine, a book which deserves to rank with the classic tales of our amateur ocean navigators. From News Chronicle, Mr. Sinclair is lucky to be alive. Modestly, as he writes, the courage and resource he displayed shine through these pages. From the Journal of the Little Ship Club, it is not until you look at the track charts with dotted lines wandering all over the Northern Hemisphere that you realize that here are some of the most remarkable voyages ever made in small craft. And lastly, from Blue Peter, Mr. Sinclair has gifts as a writer, simplicity, humor, the knack of conveying light and shade, but especially does he hold to understatement. His book is likely to achieve distinction, for these are gifts that lift a work on any subject into the realm of literature. I'm really looking forward to reading this one. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can help support what we're doing here. So now on with the cruises of the Joan. We're on chapter one. And the title is The Joan and the Beginning of the Cruise. Chapter 1 When I first saw the Joan at her moorings in Cow's Harbour, she took my fancy. She had been newly painted. She was spotlessly clean and every article on the boat was stowed just so. To me, she looked a little picture and I fell in love with her. I liked the large well where you could sit in luxury when the sun was shining and gaze around. The sun was shining that day and I sat in the well laughing happily to imagine that she could belong to me. Her draught rather frightened me. She required five feet six inches to float her and I was accustomed to a boat that drew only two feet six inches. If she ever took the ground I thought she would lie right over so that her mast would be nearly horizontal. She must never be allowed to run aground I thought. If she lies over she may never pick up again and I vowed she would never touch the ground, unless, of course, she was properly shored up. Her other measurements were sizes I had been used to. She was 22 feet 6 inches overall, and very little less on the waterline. Her beam was 7 feet 6 inches, and she was built and rigged as a Falmouth Key punt. In the previous boat I had had, nobody could stand upright. This was so plain to all that those who came aboard bowed down and remained bowed. In the Jones cabin, I could just stand up straight. Nobody else could, but I did not mind that. I had bought her for my own use. Yet, I often still bumped my head and took to wearing a bowler hat as a brain preserver. The warning crack in the hat made me duck in time. There were two well-proportioned bunks in her cabin, and at the after end of each was a cupboard under which you could stow your feet at night and your blankets by day. There was no place to put your clothes when you took them off at night, supposing you did. But even in my bedroom at home, no convenience has ever existed for arranging the clothes I take off. 
I sling them on a chair or drop them on the clean floor. You should not do this in the cabin of a small boat. There is never a chair, and there is very little unoccupied floor space. What there is, is often wet and a bit dirty. Yachtsmen, my sort, always tip their clothes on the bunk in the evening and pick them off the floor in the morning. One advantage of sailing alone was that one bunk could be used to put things upon. The Jones floor was very narrow. Two men could not get their feet across it. Even this was of advantage in bad weather, for a man could brace each knee against a bunk and be safe from falling. The cupboard at the bottom of my bunk contained the pantry and a few bookshelves. The mate's cupboard was the galley, a zinc-lined space containing two primer stoves and some cooking utensils. At the other end of his bunk was a set of small cupboards which held a wash basin and other articles generally thought to be necessary. A narrow bunk had been built along one side of the forecastle. All three bunks had lids so that gear could be stowed in the space beneath. I sailed her for the rest of that year and the whole of the next, 1922, putting a coal stove in for the winter. We sailed from the Thames to Harwich and along the Channel to Falmouth and back. Whenever I could, I took a friend to sail with me, but this was not always possible, so I learned to sail by myself. I knew a little about the game when I first bought the Joan, but she rapidly taught me more. And though her methods were not often kindly, her lessons were well and truly taught. The next season, I planned a more ambitious voyage and found a man to come with me for the start, a young Frenchman whom I had known for a good many years. He was a merry companion and he turned out a good sailing man. We sailed together from Erith as far as Grimsby and had no luxurious time. Throughout the passage, the weather was coldly miserable. We did very little night sailing. We visited Penn Mill, Southwold and Lowestoft, and in these places we were pretty well the only yacht in commission. Grimsby may seem an unsuitable place for a yacht to visit, but we lay in Alexandra Dock in great comfort. The little boat was quite safe. Nobody interfered with her. You could step ashore whenever you liked. You were handy to a good shopping centre where you could get very nearly anything you required, and the docks themselves were chock full of interest. My crew had to go home from this place. His holidays were nearly over, and he had to serve his time in the army. I stayed about a fortnight in Grimsby, and on May the 19th I went into Royal Dock to be ready for a start on Whit Sunday. The dockmaster hustled me from one place to another, and then charged me twelve shillings and sixpence without being in the least affected by my remonstrances. I was away by 9am. The wind was offshore, good and steady, with a smooth sea. It was a sailing passage such as allowed you to keep the coffee pot going all the time. During the night, the comfort grew less. The wind rose and the sea put the coffee pot out of action. By morning, the wind had gone ahead, and what with reefing and unreefing, losing the dinghy and catching it again, having the tide against me, finding false winds inshore and rough weather right away, it took me until 2pm to reach Whitby, 29 hours in all. I had to wait outside for three hours till the tide gave me enough water to get in. The afternoon was warm and sunny so that the hours passed pleasantly while I washed both the ship and myself. My entry resembled a triumph for I was received by a peer full of holiday folk with great enthusiasm. After I had blushed and bowed and waved my recently washed hands, I discovered that there was a regatta and that I was in the middle of it incommoding the competitors. That, however, was the fault of the regatta. I profited in getting a berth allotted me at once. The Joan was placed against a key wall where fenders required my constant attention while the boat was afloat, and that was for six hours out of every twelve. Many people showed interest in the Joan. 
Small boys shied bits of orange peel on her decks. Youths dropped empty cigarette packets. Their elders let fall their poor opinions while they examined her from twelve feet above. My life became a public one. All my actions were noted and described aloud. A small group came one night to see me clean my teeth before going to bed. Getting out of Whitby was trying to temper and nerves. A light air in, altered to an unknown variable by the harbour walls, a slight tidal stream out, and a discouraging swell. These conditions made the motorless Joan hate harbours. The swell turned her bow towards one of the piers, making it necessary to use a sweep in great haste. As soon as she pointed right again, the swell put her over to the other pier, and so on. After cleaning all the harbour dirt off and making all tidy, the sail was a thing to be enjoyed. The wind allowed me to reach Saltburn with very few tacks. Off this town, I suddenly discovered I was heading for Salt Scars, a stretch of rocky shoals near the shore, and seeing there was no chance of getting to the Tees before night, I stayed where I was. Here I tried heaving too, under foresail only, going towards the shore and away from it all through the night. With the wind northerly from the scars and a poppling sea, this plan saved much wear and chafe on the mainsail. When I went into the River Tees in the morning, the view was alarming, for boys and beacons of all shapes and sizes lay scattered in quantities across the water, but they happily sorted themselves out as I came near. The channel, a cable and a half wide, is bordered by training walls, straight dikes built in the river. They are buoyed and marked profusely. For most of the six miles to Middlesbrough, I had to turn in a light air. And the Tees is a really busy river. I used to think the Thames was a tight place at times. You may concentrate the Thames into a short and narrow stream, multiply the smoke by a hundred, divide the small boat anchorages by infinity, and you will get some idea of the pleasure of sailing on the River Tees. There was no sail but the Jones to be seen, and the crews of all the steamers gazed in compassion at her. I grew depressed as I searched for a spot where I might bring up. It seemed as though I might put sail on forever on this river without finding a temporary home. Circumstances at last obliged me to do something. Above the transporter bridge, the tide turned against me. I poked into a space where there was just room for a boat, and there tied between a large buoy and a small floating dock. In this space, the boat was safe, quiet and disgustingly dirty. For a week, the wind remained persistently north or thereabouts. You could not walk for rain. You could not sit still for cold. You could not sail for foul wind. The only thing to do was to write cheerful and untruthful letters to your friends. Chapter 2 Into the Fresh Air On June the 2nd, after a week of Middlesbrough, I considered I might be able to get to the Tyne. The official weather forecast suggested a moderate northeast wind for the weekend. I untied myself and drifted down the Tees. It was dark by the time I was outside. Then a fair wind came which made me change my mind and lay a course for Berwick. But by daylight, the only thing to be seen was fog. The only sounds to be heard were the noises from steamer and lighthouse sirens. Some of these appeared near enough to make me test my foghorn, and of course it was out of order, the mouthpiece being rusted tight. When I did succeed in producing a sound, the effort was too painful to keep up, while the noise it made, I am sure, could not have been heard far off. I tried hitting a pail, but that gave no noise at all. Lastly, I found a whistle and determined to blow my worst if it really became necessary. The fog was worrying and I felt relieved when it was cleared about midday by a good breeze. 
The boat bowled along well until about four o'clock when the wind came round to the northeast. As this was very nearly my course, I gave up the idea of getting to Berwick and went about for the Tyne. The Tyne is a river full of steamers and business. I had had enough of a purely business river in the Tees, so that I at once took a violent hatred of the Tyne, except for its easy entrance, and sneaked into an out-of-the-way corner off Herd Sand, where I stayed for two nights. On June the 5th, I made the passage from the Tyne to the Farne Islands in 14 hours with a moderate wind, getting as far as the Longstone Light by 11pm. Then the wind played its old trick, went foul and freshened. The nearest harbour to Leeward was Blythe, 34 miles away, a smoky steamer's harbour about which I knew almost nothing, so that I thought it best to go on. The only way of keeping a course was to watch for steamers and keep in their line of traffic, at least not too far unsure of it. An inability to see the compass was more of a nuisance that night than ever before, for I did not like to go far out, nor dared to go far in, where the Farne Islands lay. In the morning, the sea sickened me to look at it. I had never seen anything like it before. The waves were all broken. You could not make out any line of them more than a hundred yards long. The troughs were basins with breaking rims. From crest to hollow of the biggest waves, I judged at ten feet vertical height, but I found the judging difficult and unsure. The wind was blowing hard enough to make me think of a reef, but I had learnt off Harwich that, with a headwind, reefing is no good for the Joan. She got an excellent washing, but everything in the cabin kept dry except where the water came in streams down the chain pipe. I'd bought a pair of rubber thigh boots in Middlesbrough. These and oilskins made a perfect combination which kept me dry. Keeping a dry suit on you in such conditions more than doubles your power of lasting. The dinghy was a quarter full of water. The floorboards were loose and floating, and being unable to bail out, I could only hope the painter would stand the strain. But the Joan herself liked it well. I was becoming convinced she could stand something really bad. In 1922, she had behaved well running before a bad sea outside Plymouth. Someone told me she would have behaved even better head to wind, but I did not believe that. Belief was forced on me at last by facts. I reached Berwick at 8am, half an hour before high water. There were breakers all round as I came near the pier, and not a boat was to be seen. I began to wonder if there was a harbour here, and felt squeamish enough to get the anchor ready to drop on the instant. A man on the pier saw my difficulty and directed me by signs. It was a simple matter when you knew, for you had only to turn two right angles, dodge between a sandy spit and a mud flat, and let go in the channel. Wednesday, June 6th, was a red-letter day. Things combined to enliven me. I had left the time the day before, feeling tired, sleepy, and generally off-colour. All Tuesday night had been spent in a hard beat, nine hours having been taken to turn a dozen miles to Berwick. Then, to know I had gained my object, that I was in a snug, quiet harbour, while outside was a rough sea, that the cabin was dry and cosy, although the boat had been smothered with spray and water for hours, a square meal, a wash, a stroll in the sunshine on the sand, a fresh and interesting place to look at, all combined to make me pleased. And after the iron and coal country, with its constant hammering and blazing, its smoke and dirt, I felt pleased to be able to be pleased. Berwick kept me nearly a fortnight. For two or three days it blew southwest. A fair wind for me, but I had arranged to wait and rest over that period. It was lucky for me too, for on the Sunday when I went in, it blew a gale. Whenever I find myself in a good harbour during bad weather, I feel particularly pleased. Just as if for once I had got the better of my worst enemy. Later on, 
The wind went north, my course, and I waited and walked. The journey from Berwick on June the 18th was a slow one, being on a paltry wind as far as St Ab's Head and against it as far as Bass Rock did not make for speed. On Tuesday, after sailing for 21 hours, I became afflicted with the assurance that it was impossible to reach Leith that night. I drifted slowly into Largo Bay, where by the aid of a puff or two, a depth of six fathoms was found a mile off the village of Largo. The last five hours were exceedingly unpleasant, in spite of the beauty of the coastal scenery, for a long, slow drift by a sleepy steersman is a drawn-out weariness. But such an experience impresses upon me that the simplest pleasures are keenest. Nothing can make me forget the joy of lying on my bunk and deliciously falling into unconsciousness. I looked out at five o'clock next morning to find it dead calm. I looked out again at ten, and a light, fair breeze made me hurry up to dress. The boat drifted off for Leith. I thought of bringing up in the roads. The reading of harbour descriptions is discouraging. The sailing directions make me wish to keep out of most harbours. There is often trouble going in or coming out. But when I got near Granton, I saw several small yachts sailing outside. They were the first I had seen since leaving Penn Mill, and the sight of them made me feel sociable. We hailed, and I went into Granton Harbour, where a mooring was offered me on which I lay snugly for two days. Then the wind came west and hard, but a westerly wind meant an offshore wind along the Scottish coast. I considered the chance ought to be taken. A number of things had to be done, there always is. A holdfast painter had to be put on the dinghy, and two reefs had to be put in. Seeing I meant to go, everyone took up a restful position to watch the start. I have watched others getting under way very often, so that I had nothing to complain of. I could only do my best that no little mishap should occur, which it is easy to do when you start from a mooring, seeing that you have only to slip the boy to be free. My luck held. When I slung off the wire that held the boat, she went slowly and surely upon the only right tack, and as soon as the wind caught her sails, she bowed quickly and went. My vanity was spared. The wind took me as far as Ellie Ness on the north side of the Firth opposite Bass Rock. Then it dropped altogether. Very soon a northeast air came, a headwind for me. I thought severely of it and went into Ellie Bay for an anchorage. This bay is well sheltered from everything except winds between southeast and southwest. At 10 pm, the wind came southeast. It was light, but I am always ready to suspect winds, so I beat out of the place in sorrow. I might just as well have stayed to get my fair night's sleep, for the wind died away altogether while I drifted slowly on my course. When daylight came, another westerly breeze hustled me along, with all sails drawing well, the sea smooth and the boat as steady as anyone ought to want. This lasted long enough to take me across the Tay, nearly to Arbroath. Afterwards, I had a great mind to go into Montrose, but there were several hours to wait for the tide in. For the rest of the day, the weather was fine and windless. Aberdeen was abeam at 8am. Soon after I had passed it, the wind came north and began to blow heavily, it was so bad that I reefed right down, for I was just able to lay Buchan Ness. It was a weather shore, and the waves were small, but they were little brutes. They came along a bunch at a time. A wave would come lopping up at the weather bow, smack it and throw up a hundredweight of water as high as the sidelight shades. The wind blew most of this over the mizzen truck, but some of it hit the steersman. If he was quick enough, he turned his head and took it on the flap of his sou'wester. 
The cure for being slow was to be slow once. Things alarmed me so much that I went on the other tack, close inshore, hove to and bailed out the dinghy. Then I examined the chart and sailing directions and the coast to see exactly what spot I had reached, for I was greatly inclined to run back to Aberdeen. Finding, however, I was only four miles from the Ness, I went on. In order to round some outlying rocks, I had to go well out, and then I found to my surprise that the sea, though several times bigger and looking a great deal worse, in reality suited the boat better. On reaching the point, I discovered that I had made a mistake. Buchan Ness lay another six miles further, but the tide was now in my favour, and once round the Ness and having to turn, I shook out all the reefs. The boat loved nosing and dousing herself in the waves. She again made me feel confidence in her ability as she plainly showed me she would keep her crew above water if they could only trust her. A very few turns brought me into the harbour of Peterhead, where I anchored at 6pm. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.